Let me first say on behalf of our church staff, thank you. You love us so very well, and it's a joy to pour our lives out together, equipping for ministry and doing ministry together. Pastor Stephen led us a moment ago with the worship team in a song that's familiar to many of us, and I'm going to go over the lyrics again. There couldn't be a better song or set of songs this morning that echo and capture the heart of First Peter in these first 12 verses. So I'm going to do my best not to sing them, but to say them. They would just strike in our hearts. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. All of us who know Christ, we come as people who have exchanged our sand, different colored sands, different backgrounds that we've tried to build our lives on or build for ourselves. And we've exchanged them and been marked as a people who know the steadfastness and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In the finished work, the righteous for the unrighteous. Sinners made into saints by faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, what He had worked for us. We testify, we gather, we prioritize our lives in such a way as the people that have been marked by the grace of God. The solid rock we stand. We serve the living God, and in the living God we have living hope. And we abide by the living Word of our King. So one central idea that we have this morning as we boil these first few verses down is that the one true living God has granted believers with true living hope. The one true living God has granted believers with true living hope. So most of us in the room are believers. Most of us know Christ. Some of us don't yet know Christ. Most of us know Christ. And a part of our commitment together as a local church family is when we are tempted to not believe that's true when we're tempted to place our hope in other fading things. We lovingly remind each other as we sit under the Word together and we therein stand upon the goodness of the Word of God. That no, 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 no. The sandy ways of the world are not better than the rock by which we stand. Unfading, imperishable, glorious, the inheritance that we have in Christ. It is greater than all these things. The living God that we worship, unique from all others. There is only one true God. All the gods of the nations are but idols. But the living God gives true living hope to all who come to God by His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news that we have. That's worth our lives. So, so children that are joining us this morning, we're so glad you're here. This message is worth your life. That's why we stand and sing. That's why we look like a people that have a, a true hope, regardless of our circumstances. That's the goodness that we have in Christ. That's the truth that we proclaim. So we see the triune God here in all of these texts in the opening chapter. As we note first, that we were mercifully chosen by the Father. So the one true living God has granted believers true living hope. And we think about the Father, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father. We were mercifully chosen by the Father. What gives us hope this morning is not that we gather here by our resumes, our applications. We don't gather today on the Lord's Supper Sunday and say, I hope I made the cut. 
as though there was something we earned or did or merited such a time. We are recipients by grace through faith in Christ. And we, beloved, were mercifully chosen by the Father. Not reactively, but proactively. He says, to those who are elect exiles. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is not reactive and passive. This is accomplished by what he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. It's by His great mercy we come to know Him. It's by His great mercy we have life. By His great mercy, we are elect exiles. Now, that's an interesting pairing of words. Elect exiles. Think about that. There's a lot of things if I could set before you or you could set before you the rest of your life, what would you choose for your life? Parents, what would you choose for your kids? What parent would say for their kid, you know what, I hope my child grows up to become an exile, <laughs> a stranger in the land. That they would never, I hope they, I pray that they'll never really actually have a true home here. That would be the strangest response that a parent could give, wouldn't it? That doesn't sound like a kind thing. That sounds like a cruel thing. But it wasn't by cruelty that God made us as believers elect exiles. He made us, and those believers in Turkey scattered out, He made them elect exiles by His great mercy. Now in the ancient world, people traveled some, but the great incredible Roman roadway was for the soldiers predominantly and for the trade secondly. There was over 320,000 soldiers in the Roman military. And they used their incredible road system. Almost as good as ours here in Nacogdoches. They used an incredible road system. It survived thousands of years. Still, I mean, you can go. You can see the Roman roads are still there, many of them. Still preserved because of the excellence. Excellent military tool and excellent for trade. But most of the people stayed where they were from. It's not too different today. It's reported in the New York Times some time ago that the average American is, lives within 18 miles. The average adult lives, lives within 18 miles of mom. So even though we can travel all over the place, typically home is associated with the people in a place. If you look at the stained glass cross behind me, it demonstrates the call that God has given us as a congregation to proclaim the glories of Christ in the piney woods. You see the green all woven throughout here. And so for you, if you're from this area, when you drive back in from a trip and you meet the Piney Woods, you, ah, it's home. And then when you get to the people where you've had, to the place where you have multi-layered committed relationships, it's home. God in His great mercy has made us and made them exiles in the place they used to call home. Only the power of God, only the resurrected Christ could take people that in their place that they knew as home and could make them exiles. As He has given them new life. They're adults, but they've been born again. Born again to a new ultimate and final authority. They serve their King, this Christ, this Jesus. 
is now their ultimate and final authority. And this differentiation of authorities has caused friction and division in marriages and relationships that we'll see all through the rest of this letter. The people have become as exiles and the only place they truly have ever known is home. Relationally and locationally. Why? Because of God's great mercy. Because to be with Christ and to know Christ and the forgiveness we have in Him is greater than all of those. It's not a curse, but a blessing to have a living hope that is ours in Christ. This is the goodness of the news that we have in the Lord. Verse 5, who by God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As we'll see shortly, the hope and the glory and the praise and the home that we have for us is with Christ seated above. So as He has deployed us here in this earth, as those who are elect exiles, we ought to look different. We ought to look like exiles. Rebellious from the ways in the world and that we have allegiance to Christ. We're proclaiming the good news of Christ. Not building our kingdoms, but for His glory and His kingdom. As the worship team was leading us, I couldn't help but think over there just for a moment. Oh God, You're worthy of our song. You're worthy of my unbelieving neighbor's song. You're worthy of their praise. Who thinks like that's not my thought process. That's, that's the grace of God in my life thinking like that. I'm naturally selfish. My wife is due in February, and I'm so selfish that for all of our kids we've had, when they've been nursing, I've, she's asked me to go get a drink of water, and, and I want to sometimes pretend like I'm asleep so I don't hear, so I can stay in bed a little longer. I totally shouldn't have told you that. That's me, though. But what does an exile mindset, what does one who's been impacted by the great mercy of God do to us? He begins to make us think differently. We, we begin to get shaped more and more from servants of self to, to servants of the great King. The grace of God in our lives, and this takes place as we see the working, active working of the Holy Spirit. The active working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is secondly, we are sanctified by the Spirit. Sanctified by the Spirit. So we were mercifully chosen by the Father. The one true living God has granted believers true living hope. We were mercifully chosen by the Father. And we are sanctified by the Spirit. We're sanctified by the Spirit. The late Major Ian W. Ian Thomas, he explains in a simply delightful way a word sanctification. It's not a word we use commonly. I challenge you this week to use it in a normal sentence. Bonus points if you can, that'd be great. Sanctified. He uses an application of it in this way. He says, In simple essence, the word sanctification refers to something that is being put to its correct use. It means the fulfillment of the purpose for which it was originally intended. And believer, we've received salvation in Christ and He therein has set us apart to be who we were created to be. Servants of the one true God abiding in the Lord. Jesus is the ultimate normal man, he would later write. 
All the rest, what seems to be when we say, well, that's just a person being a human, we're, we're not marking on what true humanity is and what it means to be created in the image of God, to know Him and to worship Him and to be fruitful, abiding in His rule and His way. We're remarking on the fallenness of man. Of course, there's things that would seem natural to us in the flesh from the fall. That's what Scripture teaches. Sin has impacted us in our minds, the way we process information, in our, in our bodies, and in, in the way that things feel and what seems to be right. We've been impacted by sin in the totality of who we are as human beings and every component. And yet in Christ, we're set apart to live as we were created to live. The destructive chaos that marks humanity and the fallen humanity is not natural in the sense of the way the Lord designed us to be fruitful and to multiply to submit and surrender ourselves to His way. When we see Jesus, we see Jesus living in this way. Remember through the Gospel of John, all that Jesus did, He recognizes the working of the Father. His desire is to do the will of the Father who sent Him. And He does it all perfectly. He fulfills all the demands of Scripture and all righteousness. And it's because of what Christ has done as believers. We have confidence as we gather together because we've been adopted as heirs in Christ by faith. Forgiveness and life in the Son. That's good news. That's good news that we gather together. So how does the sanctification take place in our life? How is the Lord setting us apart and growing us and into His likeness? And it's not just about our individual holiness, but sanctification, this being how the Lord designed us ultimately to operate is for His glory, yes, and our increasingly likeness of Him, yes, but for the blessing of others, for the service of others for the repaying of reviling with love. What a testimony, what a blessing that the Lord deploys us in. So how does the Spirit, how does He sanctify us? Two ways that He mentions here in the opening verses. First, through the inspiration of the written words of the prophets and apostles. The Spirit of God, He works in our lives and through us by the written word, that is Scripture, by His voice. Peter identifies himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. The sanctification and the sanctification of the Spirit. And he goes on and mentions the prophets of long ago. Their ministry led by the Spirit and the writing of the words that they give. And the Spirit breathed word that nothing came about by the utterances of men themselves, but the Holy Spirit led them along. It's the very nature of Scripture. What makes Scripture Scripture there was not some conspiracy theory of a bunch of guys that got into a room and said, this would be great. Or let's keep this book out because this will mess everything up. No, no, no. Man does not have the authority to make something the Word of God. Any more than a bunch of sheep could get together and say, yeah, let's make this the voice of our shepherd. Sheep can't do that. All sheep can do is recognize the voice of their shepherd. They can receive the voice of their shepherd, but they cannot make something or elevate something to the nature of Scripture. And so too it is with the beloved. That's what we see in, in history. We see believers recognizing the, the, the written Word of God, the apostles, these special set-apart few that the Spirit would speak through to give a written word that's synonymous with the spoken word that was given. There weren't some two secret streams, some secret oral message, verbal message that was given, and then the written word. It's the same content. That's where we would differ severely from the Roman Catholic Church and their teachings. It's the same content. It's the same message. There's not two different streams. 
And this message that we have, the Word of God is worth our lives and the Spirit, He speaks to us by His Word. He convicts us and He shapes us and He sharpens us and He comforts us and He leads us and He guides us. And He leads us to be and make disciples. We can't be and make disciples apart from the Word of God. And to try to do so would be intentionally putting on a blindfold and running through the forest. It's going to get ugly. It'll be fascinating to watch. But it's going to get ugly. And so we have to ask a question as the sanctification of the Spirit by the Word, just as the Lord here, by Peter's Word, by this Scripture, is sanctifying the elect exiles scattered out in this region of present-day Turkey. In what ways does my calendar, my weekly and monthly calendar, reflect a devotion to the Word of God? And so let's, let's, let's ask that question. If we were to pull out our schedule for the month, for the week, and we were to look back in hindsight over the month, in what ways would we say, if you were a detective or you hired a detective to look at all your statements and all your components and all your time places you've traveled, would they have to write a report and embellish it to say that you're devoted to the Word? The conversations you've had with your spouse and your kids or your parents or your grandparents or your friends or your routines and where you spent your time. Would they have to embellish their report in answering the question, does this person appear to be devoted to the Word? And so as we were to set it out, how should we do this then? So the question isn't there to bring a shaming point, but to bring an honest reflection point. Desiring the Spirit to sanctify me, to set me apart and to grow me in His likeness and to, to live in the way that the Lord designed us to live. I need to be devoted to the Word. And so if this is a central building block for our life and our faith and our health and the working of the Spirit, if we were to set all of our schedules completely clear for the next month ahead, and we had a full calendar through the month of November, and imagine you could step back from your routine in your life, not quit your jobs, not drop out of school, but step back and say, okay, if I'm building in my calendar, what are the clear devotion to the Word components I know I would want to build in? What are they? Would this gathering be a part of that? Like this is probably a group of gathering, an intentional time that's as devoted to the Word as anything that you're going to see. I'll go to Kroger, but this isn't happening at Kroger. So this needs to make it into my planning. Right? If this doesn't make it into my planning, that's not healthy. The gathering together of the body. A devotion to the Word with other people in my life that can be close enough to, to not just sit under the Word together, which is vital for our health, but also to be face-to-face -face and work through the Word together. Are there people that know me well enough and in my life well enough with the credibility to say, hey, this is not healthy? Or hey, praise God, I, I see what the, how the Lord has grown you in this way. That is so awesome. So you're growing, you're being sanctified is spurring those people on that have a front row seat to your life. And, and your lack of devotion to the Word also is burdening them so that they can come and love you enough to encourage you and serve you by standing fast in the Word. 
So is that a part of our schedule? The same thing when you think of your marriage. If you were to give yourself marriage counseling, those of you that are married or dating, what, what role does the Word have in your life, in your relationship context, in your kids? What role does the Word have? What role does the, the, the Word have in your routines, in your habits, in the downtimes? And, and so just thinking of helpful questions that we can ask, not simply like, what are you, what are you reading right now? But to say, what, what book of Scripture are you excited to get into soon? You know, there's 68 days left in 2020. And all God's people said, 68 days left. But guess what? 2021 might be the hardest year of your life, right? We might look back at 2020 like this was the good old days. We don't know, do we? We don't know. But what we do know that happens on January 1st is everyone makes resolutions. And as Christians, because we know devoted to the Word is healthy, that's when we start our Bible reading plans. So if you stopped January 17th, you can pick it up right now. And the goal isn't simply to read through Scripture, but the goal would be just to need time with the Lord in the text. Do you know if you started reading the New Testament right now, in 15 minutes a day you'd read through the whole New Testament before the end of the year? How might the Spirit of God use those words that you put into your heart and your mind and speak about it? Because when you read it, what are you going to do? You're probably going to speak about it. When you watch a movie or a show that you like, what do you end up doing? Hey, have you seen so-and-so? You want to talk about it. So get the Word into your heart and into your family's hearts, into your parents' and your grandparents' hearts. If it's in our hearts and our minds, the Spirit uses it and convicts us and arms us and equips us. So, He sanctifies us. We're being sanctified by the Spirit through the Scriptures. And secondly, through suffering, which shows our possession of unconditional joy and priceless faith. They go hand in hand. The Spirit, by the Word, equips us for suffering and in suffering. Through suffering, which shows our possession of unconditional joy and priceless faith faith. He says in this y'all plural, verse 6, in this you all rejoice, believers, though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is, y'all have been grieved by various trials that the testing of genuineness of your faith. Now in 1 Peter 4, when we get there, we'll see that there is joy for the believer when they realize they're associated with Christ. Catch that? There's joy in the trial when they realize they're suffering, not for being foolish, but they're suffering because they're abiding in the way of Christ. He says, count that joy because you're in good company. But in this text, the joy comes when the trial is over. Meaning, at the end of it, you may not have as much health. And you may not have as many friends. And you may, have not, you may have been cut out of the family will. And you may have lost your job. But you have joy that is greater than fine gold because you, have, you are the possessor of battle-tested faith. Battle-tested faith. And you recognize that indeed the Holy Spirit, He who indwells you, is given to you as a deposit of the inheritance that is yours in God. He still holds you fast. When everything that you knew of home that stabilized your life is beginning to strip and stress, and yet the trial has ended, the, the gasoline in the engine of the trial has run dry, and, and it's stopped, and it's over. 
It's then you rejoice. For that little while has ended and you're left to say, glory be to God. Praise God. He's held me fast. You're the possessor of battle-tested faith. And that doesn't make us feel better about ourselves. It makes us glorify God because He's true to His Word. It's not of this world. That's the goodness of our God. The little while ends and there's battle-tested faith. We all love to read the book of Job. If you go home today and read Job chapter 1, you will finish the book of Job. Because you read Job chapter 1 and you're like, I am finishing this. This is crazy. Satan's coming in here. They've identified Job. We like to read the book of Job, but none of us want to sign up to live the book of Job, right? What we see in 1 Peter is that all believers get a taste of the story of Job. This real account that's taken place. But as believers, unlike Job, we get to see that our suffering is indeed purposeful. Job, it says life, his health, his family relationships, his social relationships, they're all strained or literally taken away, including his health. And Job declares in Job 19, 25-26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed then I will see the Lord. Suffering is always purposeful, beloved. We wouldn't sign up for it. But the Lord works purpose in it. Now, why we talk about church membership and being committed together intentionally and formally and unashamedly is every one of us will go through it. All of us, our skin will be destroyed. Our hearts will go through a grinder. And our commitment one to another is to pray for each other and to remind each other that the Spirit, He's working through suffering. So take joy because that little while will end. And the Lord works purpose through all of those things. So we hold each other fast. Why? Because He holds us fast. Amen? That's the goodness of our God. We were mercifully chosen by the Father. We're sanctified by the Spirit. And third, we will abide securely in Jesus Christ. We will abide securely in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that we serve. We serve Him. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. They were made elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. Why? For obedience to Jesus. We serve the One who served us. In obedience to the Father, He laid His life down. While we were yet enemies, Christ saved us. And beloved, we are saved to serve Him. Now in the ancient world, we know that serving was done by a whole class of slaves. We'll talk much more about the ancient world slavery, first century slavery in the weeks to come as we work through 1 Peter. But in short, slavery made up a third of the Roman world, and it was all different nationalities. Whoever Rome conquered, if they didn't kill them, they took them as slaves. 
But slaves were also paid a wage, and they could buy their freedom. And historically, we have forms that they would receive. Many of them were written on stone, other materials as well. But these emancipation texts said two things. I do what I desire to do, and I go where I desire to go. They didn't become citizens. They would become the freedmen class. The freedmen class. They were given this proof that they're no longer slaves, they're no longer property, but now they can go where they desire to go, and they can do what they desire to do. And we're reminded, believer, that we are freed, and we are most freed as believers, not when we go where we desire to go and do what we desire to do, but we are most satisfied when we serve Him. Peter is not made an apostle to serve his own desires and his own needs. He is an apostle, a servant of Jesus Christ. And brother and sister, it's the same for our lives. We're set free from slave and death and the sin master. We're set free now to serve the living Christ. The, the, the time, talents, and treasures we have are for Him and for His glory. To be and make disciples, this is God's calling upon our lives. He is the God that we serve and we love Him. Verses 7-9. through nine. We love Him and we long for the praise and glory and honor that we will receive from Christ in His return. God is impartial. God is impartial. Which means He didn't look through history and see something praiseworthy in you or in me. But by His great mercy, we've received this inheritance. And we see these markings, this glory, this praise, and this honor. And this sounds so peculiar, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is praise and glory and honor, believer, that's yours. When Christ returns... That sounds so weird to say that because we always talk about living, making disciples for the glory of God. So it's for God's glory. There's, we give God glory in our suffering. We're told here, believer, that when Christ returns, when He comes, we will receive with Him, when He's revealed glory, honor, and praise. And right away, maybe you're like me and you get defensive and think, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not doing it for the recognition. I really appreciate, it, appreciate that appreciation time. Can I say that? But that was awkward. Roman, was that awkward to stand up a little bit ago? Yeah, that's awkward. That guy stood up and taught a Bible training seminar for two days over here. Another one coming up in November. You don't want to miss it. Sign up. I'm standing up in front of you right now. This is not awkward. But me standing up and receiving some recognition, that was awkward. It was, it was great. Thank you. Right. But it was still a little awkward. And so we see this text that when the Lord comes, when Christ returns, glory, honor, and praise will be yours, believer. And we think, but, but I'm not doing it for my glory, honor, and praise. But sit in what it says. Why is this such a beautiful reminder for the believers who were elect exiles in a world that used to be their home with the people that used to be their highest places and people of authority? 
It's because we all still desire, we used to live for the praise, glory, and honor of this world. And the believer who's starting to experience suffering, at least relational suffering, and, and soon physical suffering for Christ, is being reminded that no, no, no. Don't bite into the lure of the devil. Don't bite into the lure of the flesh to think that the glory, honor, and praise of this world will ever satisfy. We don't have to pursue the glory, honor, and praise of this world because Christ already has it for us and He's going to give it to us when He comes again. Verse 6, He's the one that we love, though we do not see Him. We believe in Him, though we do not yet see Him. And the glory, honor, and praise that is due us will come when we see Him. So we can be honest. This was beautiful here. We can be honest about the dangers and the allure that every one of us in this room have, particularly for certain glories and honors and praises that the unbelieving world has to give. This is one of Satan's fastballs. It's one of his best pitches. He used it on Israel that desired to be like the nations. He used it on their priests, as we saw in Malachi. And he tries to use it on Jesus. We saw it in Matthew 4. Let me read it for you. Satan tries to use the praise, glory, and honor of this world to get Jesus to disobey the will of the Father. Matthew 4, verse 8 and 9, in this great temptation scene after 40 days of fasting. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you, Jesus, will fall down and worship me. Now, why would we think that Satan has stopped trying to use that on us? He's not stopped. That's one of his most effective pitches, isn't it? But here's the thing. Jesus commissions the disciples to do what? To be fishers of men. Satan has blinded the unbeliever. He's not catching unbelievers. They're blinded and dead in sin. Who does he use this tempting lure on. He's trying to snag fishermen. He's trying to distract and discourage and run out the clock on disciple makers. To catch them in the glory and the honor and the praise that this world tries to offer as fool's gold. And he tells the beloved, why are you chasing? Don't chase fool's gold when you have something greater then fine gold, you have battle-tested faith, beloved as an elect exile. What a reminder that we need. And so as believers, this is part of our calling together to remind each other of where the great treasure is, where our great treasure and great reward is. And this also at the same time becomes a fuel for us to live intentionally in this world. Not removed from this world, but intentionally as light in this world reassessing our goals and reassessing and being honest as we come into the next steps portion here in just a moment of the areas where we're most tempted for the praise, glory, and honor of this world, this fading things. He refers to this future salvation. One commentator, Peter Marshall, his IVP volume in 1 Peter is really nice. He uses this example. It's a fitting example on a day in which we're going to have a car show, 4.30 to 6, Fall Fest. Listen to this example he gives on our salvation as believers and this looking forward to future glory. He says, It's as if Peter were describing salvation as being like a new model of a car. 
sitting under wraps in a showroom and waiting for a display on the day when it comes on sale. Christians, if the metaphor may be pressed, are people who are already enjoying test drives in advance of its official release. I don't know that those, are, that those that are bringing cars are going to allow us to test drive. But I do know that as believers, there is no greater joy than having the privilege of encouraging each other with the Word in all seasons of life. To remind each other of where our glory is. And to joyfully walk forward intentionally to make disciples. This is worth our lives, isn't it? This is worth our lives because we worship the living God. We have a living hope and we thank the Lord for His living Word. So, in our next steps, before we observe the Lord's Supper together, number one, involve yourself with a small group of believers. We've discussed this now two weeks in a row. It's 1 Peter. You have to. These people know each other. So so ask yourself, do I have a small group of believers? Am I involved with a a women's group or a men's group or a small group at Grace? Am I involved with a group of people that know my life well enough in which we are centrally, mutually devoted to the Word? And second, ask the Spirit to show you. Ask the Spirit of God today. Holy Spirit, show me places where I am most tempted for glory, honor, and praise in the fading things. Show me those things. Show me those places. And third, together, let's ask God to work however He sees fit in order to grow our love for Jesus this week. That's a part of our congregational prayer that we have, that we're praying all through this series in 1 Peter. Now, as you came in this morning, you should have seen a a Lord's Supper cup. If you're somebody that has repented of sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, abiding in Christ, if you did not grab one of these, then uh, we'll have a a couple servers coming around to to serve you. So you can put your hand up there and grab one of those if you didn't get one of those, if you're a believer in Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, I would encourage you as you observe this, we don't partake of this in pride. We partake of this as recipients. We're recipients of what God in His great love for us has accomplished. That Christ came, the sinless Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. That by His physical body, His laying down of His body, and the shedding of His blood, we are those who have life. We are partakers of Christ. He nourishes our faith. He builds our faith. And so in this, we take a multitude of glances. As believers, we look behind at what Christ has done. And so He commissions all those in the new covenant, this new covenant made in the blood of Christ, of which we are beneficiaries, and of which you, by repentance and faith in Christ, you too can become a partaker of the glory of God. And as local churches gather and celebrate what the Lord has done for them as they observe the Lord's Supper, the sacrifice that He made once and for all, we're spurred on and encouraged in our faith as we partake of this together. So we remember what the Lord has done in His sacrificial death on the cross, His glorious resurrection, His ascension. And so we look not simply behind, we look up. And we look up and we thank the Lord who rules right now from heaven. We thank the Lord who has sent the Spirit just as the Son was sent by the Father, the the Son, the resurrected God-man, Jesus Christ. He has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us as believers and to work ministry and to rule throughout the world until His 
coming again. So we look forward to His coming. The Scriptures tell us that we proclaim the Lord's death and the gathering and celebration of the Lord's Supper until He comes. This is the good news. Just as the little while is good news, until He comes is the good news because He will come. And so our partaking of this together is a statement of faith that He will come again. And it's also a together component. We do this together as a body of believers, unashamed, unashamed to say, you know what, we're exiles. We're exiles. You're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ. We'll be with each other forever. As the Lord intended as He's rescued us by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, open the top film. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of the love of our God. The love of our God. Our impartial God who judges perfectly. That it truly is by His great mercy. The cup and the bread are reminders of His great mercy that He shows us. That's a reminder not of what we've done. We didn't earn our way to the table. We're recipients by faith. And what the Lord has done for us. And so, believer... Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as you leave today, you can throw this element in the trash. It's not something that's said a lot through church history, I imagine, of believers taking the Lord's Supper and then having to give a statement like that. But it is good to be together, isn't it? It's good to gather together and do this. It is a gift that God has given us that builds and bolsters our faith. And so let's pray together before we stand in song and encourage each other in that way and give glory to our Lord with our voices and our hearts. Lord, we do thank you we do thank You that we are partakers in Christ. We thank You, God, for the union that we have as a congregation as we are centered on proclaiming the glories of Your Son, Jesus Christ. The living hope that we have, God, we pray that throughout all of the Piney Woods, from the SFA campus across the street, Lord, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of town, through our county and through the world. People would come to know you 
and the forgiveness that would be theirs by faith in Your Son, Jesus. And so, Jesus, we thank You for perfectly fulfilling the will of the Father and the works that the Father had given You to do. We thank You that You defeated death and rose again. We thank You that we speak to You with confidence that we are heirs and forgiven in Christ. What a joy it is to be able to live as Your disciples, to live as, as exiles. Spirit of God, help us to expose in our hearts those areas where we cling most tightly. Help us, Lord, to long and to take pleasure in rejoicing in present sufferings and, and when those sufferings end. We look forward to the glory, honor, and praise that is ours when Christ is revealed. But until that day, God, find us faithful. Receive our songs of praise. And Lord, do a great work in our lives and in this place. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together. Amen. Would you stand with me?